gospel according to Mark. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. If you have it on your technology, no judgment for looking at your phone. So if you could get to Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at the end of that chapter, verses 35 through 44. Last week, we reflected on what Jesus said was most important. What's most important, to love God with everything that makes me, me, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love my fellow man in the same way that I care for, that I provide for, that I protect, that, that I long for the best for myself. We discussed that this love can only flow from a response to God's love. A response to the unimaginable love of God that is lavished on us much, much more than even too much food, right? Lavish, lavished on us by God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's founded on His covenant promise that He makes to us. A covenant promise that is sealed in the blood of His Son. Uh, this being true, we considered that we, that we must respond to this love not in affection alone, but not in duty alone. But if you will, we must weave those things together in a heart that's turned towards God's heart in faith. That we're being transformed by His love for us. There was a quote that I, I, I remember during our connections time. Um, I will kill this. I, I should probably have. So, uh, how would I say that name? How would I say that name? It's French. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Say it louder. <laughs> Did you see? Uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> I would have killed that. So, that man, he's an early 20th century French author. He wrote, If you want to build a ship... Don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks, for, and tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So I, likewise, I think that as our hearts are transformed by the love of God, we in turn are to long for him. And that's where affection will flow, and that's where duty will flow, and obedience will flow, as our hearts are transformed by His love, and we long for Him, and we said as we have to worship, right, what else could I do but give my all for Him, including loving our neighbor as ourselves. This morning, we're, we're going to start off, we've, if you've been following with us, I know a few of you are visiting, if you've been following with us, Jesus has just been hit with several questions, uh, a couple of them obviously insincere, one of them maybe moving towards sincerity. A lot of them were testing him, trying to catch him in his words. And, and this morning we start with a question that Jesus now asks. It, it's his turn to ask a question to the religious leaders. And at first blush, it actually comes off as a pretty strange question. So we're going to start by asking, what was he asking and why was he asking it? Uh, Mark 12, verses 35, 36, and 37 while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts. Now remember the context. This is his last week on earth before the cross. He's in the temple. He asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, or Messiah, right? Christ is the Greek for the word Messiah. How is it that the Christ 
is the son of David. David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. We'll pause there. So, as we pull back the camera just a little bit, right, to get a wider shot of what's going on here, we do well to remember that Jesus, God's Messiah, God's Son, is being challenged by and in turn challenging the, the, the ruling religious minds and authorities of his day in his context. Um, through this, he brings some corrective measure to what they're teaching and what they're modeling. And he continues to do that here by asking this, this question. He kind of asks it a little bit in parts in the couple of verses I, I read. Let me ask you, what is he asking? Now, now I just want to put a little asterisk next to that. I'm not yet asking why he's asking it. I'm just asking, what is he asking? What's, what in a nutshell is Jesus asking? Who is the Messiah? Okay, in what context? Yeah, in his relation to David, exactly. So, so the, the expectation uh, was that th there's going to be this, uh, this Messiah, this anointed one that will come. And we say, well, what is his relationship to David? He's, he, David is considered one of the great forefathers of Israel, and he's considered the greatest king of Israel. So now... Through, when you looked at the prophecies that even they recognized, the Jews recognized as messianic, that pointed to Messiah, pointed to the coming deliverer, they knew that he would be what they called David's son, which not literally one generation from him as a father, but that he would be a descendant of David. So you remember as he, walked, as he came into Jerusalem, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the son of David, right? And blind Bartimaeus. Uh, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. These are all Ways of saying, Jesus, I'm recognizing you as Messiah because they knew that he'd be in the line of David. Um, it's, it's the question which is really interesting is it seems like Jesus is asking who's superior, David or Messiah? Um, the Messiah was expected that he would sit on David's throne, that he would reestablish his days of glory. But on the one hand, Messiah is referred to as David's son. So they would certainly say, as David's son, as David's descendant, Messiah in one sense is under, under David. But then Jesus says, well, wait a minute. Listen, in Psalm 110, which was understood as a messianic psalm, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, the Lord when you go back to Psalm 110, is capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Okay? The Lord says to my Lord, now this is David saying, my Lord, and he's speaking of the Messiah. 
sit at my right hand. He's talking about sitting on the throne of God, the right hand of God, until your enemies are vanquished. And you say, well, wait a minute, who can sit on the throne of God but God? (laughs) Who can sit on, who can be welcomed to the throne of God but God? So, So in a sense, Jesus is asking, how can Messiah both be David's son and his Lord that sits on God's throne? And it seems that, by the, according to the silence, it seems like the, the religious leaders either cannot or will not answer. You kind of, if you're, you know, watch UFC, you know, they, he's, they, he's got them a bit on their heels. And apparently that is to the crowd's delight. All right, so why is he asking it? Why does it matter? Okay. Any 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 other thoughts? I am he. Yeah, I am he. Yeah. Are you asking me or you? Yeah. Yeah, consider for a minute the implications of Messiah if he was only David's son. If he was only David's son, only his descendant, which he was technically, um, that means that he has a ceiling. And his ceiling really is maybe, maybe as as accomplished as David his father was, right? Maybe the son, the descendant, would live up to the greatness of his father David. So in a sense, their limitations and their expectations are formed by this idea of a human ruler that will sit on David's throne, you know, and bring back the glory of David's kingdom. And what perfect timing, because we're occupied under the tyranny of Rome. But what if Messiah is much more than that? What if, what if Messiah is not strictly the son of David? Well, then they'd have to vastly adjust their expectations of him. And what if Messiah was so far greater than his father David and his, that his lineage wasn't only of earth, that he wasn't only the son of man, but that he actually was welcomed by God himself, sit at my right hand, makes him equal to God. And the greatest king of all of Israel would actually bow to him and say, you are my Lord. Well, then they'd have to vastly adjust their response to him. Because he's not even just potentially an earthly king. He's what? He's God. He's God. And what if he actually was the one speaking to them? And, and to all this, you know, the, the leaders just, for now, they stay mum. Consider for a moment our tendency to nearly deify forefathers. Maybe, maybe I'm poking the bear a little bit here. 
Um, you know that you know, and, and it could be patriotic forefathers, and it could be it could be religious forefathers, it could be Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Franklin, Hamilton, Madison. No diss on them, but boy, do we have a tendency sometimes to deify them. Or religious forefathers like Luther and Calvin and Wesley and whoever else you might attach your traditions to and denominations to. And, and, and we raise these men up as if they're somehow more than human and then bring Jesus, what, down to their level. Jesus should never take a back seat to the ideology or the teaching or the, or the image of any human forefather. Amen? That is incredibly backward. Incredibly backward. And, and the question that, 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 that ends up getting to the heart of things here is, who, you know, again, the, who, what is Messiah's real identity? And therefore, if Jesus is, as Bartimaeus called out and the crowds called out, the son of David, what is his real identity? It's more than just a man. And if he really is not just a great man among, man among men, but he really is the son of God, what does that mean for me? What does that mean uh, in how I should respond and my life should respond to his authority and his teaching and his power, his example, his activity? What does that mean for me? The religious leaders are badly missing the mark, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. He, he, says, he says in verse 38, as he taught, Jesus says, watch out for the teachings of the, the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. James 1.27 says, Religion that God the Father, our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Kind of sounds like the opposite of what these guys were doing. Jesus gives a warning of the pitfalls that come with, we might say, with great knowledge and great power especially maybe in the religious setting. Knowledge and power can be, can be um, the opportunity for great good, right? It really can be. But it also can be the opportunity for great harm. Because the more knowledge and the more power, it puffs up the ego. And the more knowledge and the more power, the more opportunity you have to actually take advantage of the very people you're supposed to be helping. And, and, and this was exactly the case of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Their dress distinguished them as special. I read one place actually that they had these robes that really were for like their religion, what they did in their religious practices, but they just got accustomed to wearing them all the time. And because when they would go out in the marketplace and they're wearing their special robes, people would go, oh, oh, could I say this? Pastor, so good to see you, brother. Oh, missionary Dave. Oh, oh, let's, let's honor you. 
I know Dave doesn't have the heart of these, and that's why I can use it. But right, that's, oh, 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 you're so, so special. And they loved it. They ate it up. Look how I dress. You can see that I'm special. And look, and at all the religious, at all the, the religious um, settings, they got the best seats, and they would go to a banquet and say, no, no, you have to sit front. You have to sit next to the guest of honor. And they loved it. And they ate it up, and they ate it up, and they ate it up. They put heavy burdens. If you look at Matthew 23, um, Jesus, this is, there's a much more expanded discourse on this. And, and they put heavy burdens on the people with their rules while they made life more and more comfortable for themselves. They would take advantage of, like I said, the most vulnerable that they should have been caring for. They found ways to, even with widows, to come in and, and, and actually abuse them by taking their money and, and using it for themselves. They would pilfer them, line their own pockets. They were masters at religious camouflage because they could always cover it up. And this is how they could always cover it up. Well, let me tell you the word of God, brother. I can quote any scripture you want. Oh, and and you know what? On a dime, you know, let me give you a good, eloquent, pious-sounding, holy-sounding public prayer. Well, it's really good that we don't have problems like this in Christianity today. (laughs) It's really good that Christianity is never a show for people while ignoring God, that we don't use it to seek the praise of men. How subtle that is. How subtle that is. I'm sitting at, we have a little men's group on Wednesday, and I'm sitting there, and sometimes I have to think, I want to answer a question. Wow, he knows and no one else knows. How subtle that is, right? It's good that we, we don't, that, that we don't uh, emphasize outward appearances in Christianity, right? Codes of dress and codes of conduct and not, not worry about the heart. It's good that we never do that. Uh, it, it's, it's good that we don't mask our pride with the knowledge of scriptures and our ability to sound pious in an instant with a beautifully worded prayer. It's good we haven't learned that Christian lingo. It's good that we don't overlook the weak and most vulnerable when it suits our best interests, whether it be political, social, or financial. Hmm. Knowledge and power give opportunity for great good and great harm. And this is true, maybe even more true, in a religious setting and a Christian setting. And, and Jesus says that, that if you use it for great harm, and again, I, I'm not like a fire and brimstone guy, but I'm also not going to ignore when Jesus says hard things, okay? Jesus says, if you use it for great harm you're in a dangerous, dangerous place. R. Allen Cole writes, so so comes the irony that Jesus preached love to the sinner, but judgment to the religious. Not, of course, because they were religious, but because they were indeed hypocritical. Verses 41 through 44 
Jesus sat opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just going to read a couple more verses here. Jesus read in the, uh, preached in the Sermon on the Mount. You find this in the beginning of Matthew chapter 6. He says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here Jesus points to the other end of the spectrum. He, he, he's still in the temple. He goes to, what the, to uh, the court of the women. And, and this is where the, the boxes for giving and offerings were given, uh, had. There was actually 13 boxes, boxes for temple taxes, boxes for free will offerings, boxes for money that would go to the poor. And he goes there and he does what? Yeah, he watches. He watches. So after all this activity, he just, he just goes and he just... Just watches. And you get this sense that, that he, he carefully dissects action from motivation. Many rich people threw in large amounts. The author David Garland points out, the rich were still rich even after a sizable offering. And listen, the Bible never says that it's wrong in and of itself to be rich, right? Um, in fact, I think we always need to remember, compared to most of the world, most of us in this room would be considered rich. But, and there's been many wealthy Christians that have done tremendous good. Tremendous good. But the Bible does teach that with riches comes some spiritual peril because it's all too easy to trust in riches. rather than, And that's trust in the sense of satisfaction. That's trust in the, in the sense of security than it is to wholly trust in the Lord. Really, that's what a lot of these religious leaders were doing. And then enters this poor widow. And, and in this system, it was a patriarchal system. Um, if, a, if, if a woman was a widow and she, her husband died and she had no adult sons, I mean, she could be destitute. She, they, they, women relied on uh, men in that culture 
for, for economic protection and social protection. And she could be easily taken advantage of. And she, she literally could be on the streets. She could have practically nothing if she had, didn't have family to support her. For all we know, this could have been one of the very widows that Jesus was talking about that the leaders were taking advantage of. There's this idiom that we use when we're kind of low on cash. We say, we say that I don't even have two pennies to what? Rub together. I don't even have two pennies to rub together. And Jesus knows, and we don't know if it's just divine insight, he knows this is all she has in the world. This is it. We don't know how she got it. She doesn't, we don't know if she got down to it. We don't know if she just was able to make a couple bucks selling something in the marketplace that day. I mean, I mean, a couple cents, right? This is all she's got. And, and she goes over to the offering box, and there's all this going, you know, the rich is clang, 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 throwing in their coins, clang, 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 and woo, look at what he gave, look at what he gave. And she comes really quietly, and she's got two cents to her name, literally. I wonder if she paused on her second, you know. That's all I got. She puts them both in. So what? I mean, really, two pennies. What's two pennies? Who would notice? <laughs> Can a poor person really contribute? Can a vulnerable and destitute and marginalized person really contribute to the temple, to the church? Apparently, that depends on who you're asking. Because Jesus says, guys, guys, come here, come here, come here. Look at this. Check this out. This is important. Why? Somebody quick, why? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be an element of trust there, right? In the message, it, Jesus says, the truth is that this poor woman gave more to the collection than all the others put together. All the others gave what they'll never miss. She gave extravagantly what she couldn't afford. She gave her all. A quick side note, and, and I'll wrap this up. I know we started a little late here. And I've mentioned this before. If you really want to observe the incredible stuff of life, and a lot of times, a lot of times that includes what God is doing, it often happens in the most unassuming, humble places with the most unassuming, humble people. Not the superstars. But you've got to watch for it. You got to watch for it. And God is always watching for it. And you might come here today and, and think, I've got little to nothing to offer. My meager efforts don't measure up compared to fill in the blank. 
who will notice my two cents. But the question really isn't about how much you're giving. It's about how much you're holding back. <laughs> and please understand this being more, about, more than just about money, right? You get it? It's more than just about money. Again, R. Allen Cole says, God measures giving not by what we give, but by what we keep for ourselves. It, most of us learn in school that there's two types of data. There's quantitative data and there's qualitative data. And one measures volume and one measures worth. And I'll tell you that God is much more concerned about worth than he is volume. And if you're giving yourself, however imperfectly, and your trajectory is that I will, Lord, I will give you my all, heart, soul, mind, and strength because I love you, because you first loved me. Even if no one else notices, and even if it's not at the same volume as whoever, God notices. He watches. And those are the things that he says, wow. Can you imagine the Son of God saying, wow, check this out. So if you don't have the most beautiful voice, it's okay. If you don't have the most talent, it's okay. If you don't have the most money, it's okay. If, you, if you're not the most eloquent, it's okay. If you're not the smartest person in the room, it is okay. Offer what you have to the Lord in love and let him see it as beautiful an audience of one and let him multiply it according to his kingdom amen in a few chapters Mark's going to point out that Jesus gives his all on the cross he, sacrif he doesn't hold anything back and you know what in the moment most people saw that as a way what a waste of a life. How silly. And God used that very sacrifice to save the world, anyone who would come to him in faith from their sin and death. So when you go, as you go out this week, remember that God's system of economy, heaven's economy, values far, far differently than we do. Which value system will you live by this week? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together. Um, we glorify your name. I pray, Lord, that it, it's just, you know, my heart, anything that I said that was dumb and useless, let it burn up like chaff. Anything that is of your Holy Spirit and good and true, let it rise to the surface, Lord God, in our hearts and minds, that we would go out and be like that widow, that we put aside the religious show, that we know the son of the living God is the one that we follow and worship, and that we would give our all, no matter what that is, <laughs> trusting, Lord, that you call it beautiful, that you will multiply it out of your abundance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.